Hello everyone, I want to now talk about uh, every memory I have had regarding the subject of religion slash sexuality and sense immersion. And I, I was going through my mental Rolodex, as it's called, commonly, and uh, I was wondering if I covered all the bases. And I said, one more thing I left out was the forgery. So here we go. Religion.blogs.cnn.com. This is by John Blake CNN. This was May 13, 2011, 11.47 a.m. East Coast time. Half of New Testament forged, Bible scholar says, a frail man sits in chains inside a dank, cold prison cell. He has escaped death before, but now realizes that his execution is drawing near. I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, the man the Apostle Paul says in the Bible, 2nd Timothy book. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. The passage is one of the most dramatic scenes in the New Testament. Paul, the most prolific New Testament author, is saying goodbye from a Roman prison cell before being beheaded. His goodbye veers from loneliness to defiance and finally to joy. There's just one problem. Paul didn't write those words. In fact, virtually half the New Testament was written by imposters taking on the names of apostles like Paul. At least according to Bart E. Ehrman, a renowned but biblical scholar who makes it charges in his new book, Forge. Well, it was new at the time. There were a lot of people in the ancient world who thought that lying could serve a greater good, says Ehrman, an expert on ancient biblical manuscripts. In Forge, Ehrman claims that at least 11 of the 27 New Testament books are forgeries. The New Testament books true to Jesus' disciples could not have been written by them because they were they were illiterate. Many of the New Testament's forgeries were manufactured by other Christian leaders trying to settle theological feeds. Were Jesus' disciples illiterate peasants? Ehrman's book, like many of his previous ones, already generating backlash. Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, has written a lengthy online critique of forged. Witherington called Ehrman's book Gullible Travels, where it reveals over and over again the willingness of people to believe even outrageous things. All the New Testament books, with the exception of 2 Peter, could be traced back to a very small group of literate Christians, some of whom were eyewitnesses to the lives of Jesus and Paul, as Witherington says. Um, Forge also underestimates the considerable role scribes played in transcribing documents during the early days of Christianity, Witherington says. Even if Paul didn't write the second book of Timothy, he would have dictated it to a scribe for posterity, he says. When you have a trusted colleague and co-worker who knows the minds of Paul, there's no problem in antiquity with that trusted co-worker hearing Paul's last testimony, last testimony in prison, he says. This is not forgery. This is the last will and testament of someone who is dying. Ehrman doesn't confine his critique to Paul's letters. He challenges the authenticity of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. He says that none were written by Jesus' disciples citing two reasons. He says none of the earliest Gospels revealed the names of its authors and that their current names were later added by scribes. Ehrman also says that two of Jesus' original disciples, John and Peter, could not have written the books attributed to them in the New Testament because they were illiterate. According to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, both Peter and his companion, John, also a fisherman, were act Grammatoi, a Greek word that literally means unlettered, that is illiterate, he writes. 
Will the real Paul stand up? Herman reserves most of his for the writings of Paul, which make up the bulk of the New Testament. He says that only about half the New Testament letters attributed to Paul, seven to thirteen, were actually written by him. Paul's remaining books are forgeries, Herman says, as proof. Inconsistencies in the language, choice of words, and blatant contradiction in doctrine. For example, Ehrman says the book of Ephesians doesn't conform to Paul's distinctive Greek writing style. He says Paul wrote in short, pointed sentences while Ephesians is full of long Greek sentences. The opening sentence of Thanksgiving in Ephesians unfurls a sentence that winds through 12 verses. He says, there's nothing wrong with extremely long sentences in Greek. It just isn't the way Paul wrote. It's like Mark Twain and William Faulkner. They both wrote correctly, but you would never mistake the one for the other, Urban writes. The scholar also points to a famous passage in 1 Corinthians in which Paul is recorded as saying that women should be quote unquote silent in churches, that if they wish to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. I looked at these chapters earlier in the same book. Paul is urging women who pray and prophesy in church to cover their heads with veils, Urban says. If they were allowed to speak in chapter 11, how could they be told not to speak in chapter 14? Why people forged. Forgers often did their work because they were trying to settle early church disputes, Ernie says. The early church was embroiled in conflict. People argued over the treatment of women, leadership, the relations between masters and slaves, he says. There was competition among different groups of Christians about what to believe in each of these groups. Want to have authority to back up their views, he says. If you were a nobody, you wouldn't sign your own name to your trustees. You would sign Peter or John. So people claiming to be Peter and John and all sorts of people who claimed to know Jesus went into publishing overdrive. Armin estimates that there were about 100 forgeries created in the name of Jesus' inner circle during the first four centuries of the church. Witherington concedes that fabrication and forgeries floated around the earliest Christian communities. But he doesn't accept the notion that Peter, for example, could not have been literate because he was a fisherman. Fishermen had to do business. Guess what? That involves writing contracts and signed documents, said in an interview. Witherington says people gravitate toward Ehrman's work because the media loves sensationalism. We live in a Jesus-haunted culture that's biblically illiterate, he says. Almost anything can pass for historical information. A book like Forge can unsettle people who have no third or fourth opinions to draw upon. Ehrman, of course, has another point of view. Forge will help people accept something that it took him a long time to accept, as the author and former fundamentalist who is now an agnostic. The New Testament wasn't written by the finger of God, he says. It has human fingerprints all over its pages. I'm not saying people should throw it out or it's not theologically fruitful, Urban says. I'm saying that by realizing it contains so many forgeries, it shows that it's a very human book, down to the fact that some authors lied about who they were. I'll just talk about religion. I'll do this episode tomorrow. So, that is what made me understand why the Bible is a human anthology. that people have made out to be a form of divinity in and of itself. For me, for example, 
there are parts of the Bible that talk about justice and equity. So those are the solid parts of the Bible. The prudent parts of the Bible mean, you know, actually making sure that people are fed and clothed and in, in, uh, given drink, visiting people in prison, visiting those who are sick. Those are the prudent and solid parts of the Bible that I can get down with. But there's a lot about the Bible that is theologically unfruitful. Um, and I really want to get into talking about that because it's very important that we can be decent people And at the same time, not feel pressure to go by other people's thoughts of God. But we can go by our own thoughts of God. Um, regardless of how we feel on the subject, it's like it's about what do you think? Because I think a lot of believers are so into being afraid to humanize themselves sometimes believers don't believe in God sometimes believers have atheists sometimes believers have gnosis because they're human so life is contradictory and in perfect people we are humanized contradictions we all are so it's like yeah you're a Christian but you have doubts and skepticism about the Bible from time to time no one believes in God all the time and those are not bad things it just means that struggling courageously and peacefully with weighty and not fully understandable concepts it means that there's this pursuit of growth and this adventure with development so if we would look at it that way and not worry about do I believe or not don't worry about that all you have to do is know what your true values are. If that includes God, then you can relate to an atheist and be a Christian. There are friendships and romantic relationships, even healthy colleague and co-worker relationships where one 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 employee who's cool the other employee, one is an atheist, that's a Christian, but they can relate to each other because of the full human experience you do have those types of relationships so um that is something that people really 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 need to understand and i want to read this quote because it's so true i want to read these quotes i mean take the time found it says religion is for people who fear hell spirituality is for people who have been there David Bowie is the person who said that again religion is for people who fear hell spirituality is for people who have been there another way of saying it 
religion is for people who are scared to go to hell. Spirituality is people who have already been there. Another way of saying it is that Religious people fear hell. Spiritual people have walked through it. Religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spiritual is for those who have been there. And one quote says, I'm going to hell in every religion. Malcolm X said, this is Malcolm X, okay? I believe in a religion that believes in freedom. Anytime I have to accept a religion that won't let me fight a battle for my people, I say to hell with that religion. The late Christopher Hitchens said, to terrify children with the image of hell, to consider women as inferior creation, is that good for the world? I just had to pause on that. That's why I get quiet sometimes. So this is also what I want to say. that as human beings we gotta think about this quote the more religion makes a person feel guilty and insecure the harder the person works for the religion religions for those who believe in hell and a, and, a, and a spiritual belief is for those who've been and so the reason why I'm taking my time It's because it's a sensitive subject, so I really need to pause so I can conclude the episode knowing that I was very compassionate when talking about this. Because a lot of times, a lot of believers want to say, you know, free will, and God gives us choices. 
It's just that simple. No, it's not. Most of life is contradictory, complex, complicated, gray areas, and foggy. That's how life is, shades of gray. Um, and so I don't understand why is it, why is gray areas acknowledgement of gray areas themselves a threat to threat to faith that's just insane to me um because i think that a lot of times believers go by what the bible says about god but they can't tell you a lot of them can't tell you what they feel about god without using the bible if you can't describe god naturally how you think about god without using the bible then you're truly not a believer what I definitely stand on that. So, I think about how a lot of times when a lot of believers get uncomfortable, they use the free will argument because. Instead of trying to be compassionate, just being naturally compassionate, they feel like I gotta get into a defense mode. No, you don't. If you're worried that, oh my God, if I acknowledge the secularism within myself, but acknowledge the secularity within me, then that means I don't believe in God. So basically, a lot of believers are undercover atheists. They say one thing but on the inside, they're not addressing the saying the one thing because they're doing the completely total opposite, right? And so for me, it's always been, if you are worried about showing your full human Society that includes doubts and skepticisms and worries and fears and nervousness and shame and blame and guilt. If you're worried about protecting those sides from people, and if you're worried about, oh man, if I talk to an atheist and I acknowledge without skepticism, oh my God, I'm, I'm an atheist myself, I can't do that, then that means you are totally faithless and that God is not the center of your life. To begin with. But I want to say this. We're all going to hell. In someone else's religion. <laughs> and that. Is true. And I would say we're all going to someone's version of hell. In people's religion. So. You're all going to hell going to somebody's religion. See?
And I always wanted to to say this. When we think about how our lives have turned out, how our lives have been. Then we have to understand that for us to be human beings, There's going to be things about even religious texts that you have the ancient and modern interpretations. Controversy that's the one. Okay, we're modern, so we can be applied from that time in the Bible. And um, it's very much a struggle. Very going through a change by understanding that um, I do have moments of pantheism which is pantheism is the belief that reality is identical with divinity or that all things encompass all encompassing imminent god or goddess um and Theistic belief does not rec- does not recognize a distinct personal God as a formalistic or otherwise instead characterizes a broad range of doctrines differing in terms of relations between reality and divinity. So I do have moments of pantheism. Um, I recently learned about myself today because every time I say the, the term pra- pra- pragmatist, I'm like, what is that? And then I just looked at the definition. I said, oh, I'm a pragmatist. I mean, pragmatism is a philosophical tradition that considers words and thought as tools and instruments for prediction, problem solving, and action. The objective is the function of thought is to. Wait a minute. I don't reject, but I do not reject the idea that the function of thought is to describe, represent, and mirror reality. I'm like, uh, that's not how my pragmatism works. I'm a person who's guided more by practical considerations than by ideals. Um, I'm a person who is um, 
A pragmatist is a person who deals with problems or situations by focusing on practical approaches and solutions, ones that, ones that work in practice, as opposed to being ideal in theory. That would be me. I'm a pragmatist. But I can't I can't forget by saying to y'all again that I'm a rationalist. A rationalist is someone whose worldview is guided by reason. I refuse to swallow any idea or dogma that does not make sense. I critically examine any idea presented to me and I take what I can stand, scrutiny, and I do discard the rest. Wait a minute, hold on. I critically examine any idea presented to me and I take what I, I I'm sorry, let me stop. I critically examine any idea presented to me and takes what can stand scrutiny and I discard the rest. I take what can stand scrutiny. And I just suspend judgment until more information is available to make a judgment sometimes. Um, That's just how I feel. And now you know I'm a Hmm. You're so grateful for my views. I think about how free I am to, to um, overcome tribal religion. so glad that I can say these things. There was a time where I didn't feel like I could.
Paris is so free. Okay, you know what? I am so going to talk about this. Here we go. I'll read some things about this because this is very important. The late Bishop John Shelby Spong said, the Bible has been used for centuries by Christians as a weapon of control. To read it literally is to believe in a three-tiered universe to condone slavery, to treat women as inferior creatures, to believe that sickness is caused by God's punishment, that mental disease and epilepsy are caused by demonic possession. When someone tells me that they believe the Bible is the literal inerrant word of God, I always ask, have you ever read it? And then the late Bishop John Shelby Spong says, Texts from the source we call Holy Scripture has been used in the past to defend the divine right of kings and to oppose the Magna Carta, to condemn Galileo and to assert that the sun does indeed rotate around the earth, to justify slavery, segregation, and apartheid, to keep women from being educated, entering the professions, voting or being ordained, to justify war, to persecute and kill Jews, to condemn other world religions, and to continue the oppression and rejection of gay and lesbian people. Bishop John Shelby Spong, the late Bishop John Shelby Spong, left out transgender individuals probably because when he wrote the passage in 2005 at a time when promotion of equality for transgender persons had not reached a high profile blake richard dawkins says the god of the old testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction jealous and proud of it a petty unjust unforgiving control freak a vindictive bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser a misogynistic homophobic racist Infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And the late Bishop John Shelby Spong says The problem with the Old New Testament is that they are both dated pieces of literature that reflect the values and mores of those who wrote it between 1000 BCE and 135 CE. Many passages in the Old Testament reflect a tribal mentality that portrays God as hating everyone the people of Israel hated. It also portrays God as killing the firstborn male in every household in Egypt on the night of the Passover, justifies the institution of slavery except for fellow Jews, and defines women as the property of men. Note that even the Ten Commandments exhort us not to cover our neighbor's wife is white. I'm sorry, note that even the Ten Commandments exhort us not to not cover our neighbor's house, his wife, his slaves, his ox, his ass, etc. The neighbor is clearly a male, and the things that we are forbidden to cover are all male possessions. These Hebrew scriptures, however, also define God as love, justice, and as a universal being. In the portrait of the serpent in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, the Hebrew scriptures portray human life as capable of giving itself away, even of acting in such a way as to draw the pain out of others, absorb it, and return it as love. The New Testament portrays Paul as believing that slavery is good if it is kind. Paul also reveals attitudes toward women that are today deeply embarrassing. I forbid a woman to have authority over a man. Women should keep quiet in church.
I have long asserted that the Bible was written by humans who were influenced by their tribal culture, regional violence, and lack of scientific knowledge. I accept that the pastors did not reflect the will of God at the time and are not the will of God today. And some of the early Christian groups, including many the Gnostic tradition, were so offended by what they viewed as profoundly moral actions driven in the Hebrew scriptures, also in the Old Testament, to Yahweh, that they rejected all the Hebrew scriptures and slash even lowered the status of Yahweh so that if a demiurge, an inferior deity, an inferior deity that who lacks morality. Um, Here we compare various here we compare various passages in the Bible with current standards of morality. Both secular and religious dissection lists many events in the Bible that are immoral by today's secular standards, including genocide, murder of people for their religious beliefs, mass murder of innocent children, transferring guilt and punishment from the guilty to the innocent, executing some hookers by burning them alive, etc. That's what it was said. I'm just being truthful about what was said. They're sometimes called hard passions because it seems to portray God as behaving in a way that would be considered highly moral by most people today. Thomas Jefferson said, God is a being of terrific character, cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. Those are Bible passages. Here we go. Numbers chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. The Bible. Now therefore kill every male among the living ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. For all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Geneva Convention. Persons taking no active part in hostilities, including members of armed forces who have laid down their arms in those placed, forced to combat by sickness, wounds, detention, and other cause shall in all circumstances be treated humanely without any adverse distinction founded on race, color, religion, or faith, sex, birth, or wealth, or any other similar criteria. I'm just so I'm so at peace and understanding. that I don't have to 
that I don't have to work so hard to try to defend what I know is not to be true. And with that being said, I'm officially concluding the episodes of religion. We will talk about a sex one tomorrow. Thank you for allowing me to actively heal the religious wounds in my life. Thank you for being patient. It's been a long time coming. Back on since after this, June 10th is, you'll hear it again, okay? One month break of religion starts now. 